0: This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Book Waves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. This interview with Paul Oster was originally posted on April 1st, 2017. My guest is Paul Oster, whose latest novel is 4 3 Two, 1, earlier novels, the last time I interviewed you, Book of Illusions, Brooklyn Follies, Music of Chance, Timbuktu, this is the 17th novel. <laughs> there are books of poetry, five screenplays, directed four films, three films officially, and I guess Smoke was unofficial. That was a film made by the two of us, but I was not the director. Okay, yeah. Okay. so IMDb, once again, goes a little bit off the deep right, end on right, that one. no doubt. Before we start on 4321, I'd like to ask you about a film called The Inner Life of Martin Frost, because I interviewed you about Book of Illusions, and there was a fictional film from 1946 called The Inner Life of Martin Frost, yes, yes. which appears to have the same plot as the film
1: that you actually made. Okay, you really want to hear this story? I'll give it to you. It's a a fascinating thing. All right, I made a film in 1997 called Lulu on the Bridge. Not long after that. I was approached by a German television producer who had done a series of 30-minute films that had been quite successful, and she wanted to do another series. These were stories about, I guess, erotic life between men and women. She asked me if I wanted to do one, and I thought it might be interesting to make a two-person film with the constraints of the time. So I wrote the script. It was called The Inner Life of Martin Frost. They accepted it, they wanted to do it. Then it turned out that the uh, payment schedule was a bit bizarre. They would give uh, one-third on signing and then one-third when we went into production, but then the last third only if they approved of the film. Well, a friend of mine, Hal Hartley, another American filmmaker, had done one of the films, and they had not approved of his film, and he had had to go out of pocket to finish it to their satisfaction. I didn't want to stick my producer with this kind of burden, so I backed out of the deal. So I had this script, The Inner Life of Martin Frost, and then I started thinking about it some more and thinking, I should actually turn this into a feature film. I'm quite compelled by the story. And I took down many notes for how to complete the film, but never wrote it because not long after I got the idea to start writing The Book of Illusions, which has something to do with silent film and other kinds of film in this novel. So I got to a point in this novel where I wanted to show a later example of Hector Mann, who is the protagonist, work and I decided that actually the inner life of Martin Frost was a perfect thing to use. But I couldn't use the long version because it would destroy the balance of the novel, so I went back and just did the short version. Not as a screenplay, but just a reiteration, a telling of the, of the film. Book came out, we talked, uh, I talked to other people, I went on and did other things, and, and a few years later, when I was between books, I started thinking about the longer version of the film that I had never done and decided that I would pursue it. So I wrote the script, the full script now, and managed to get the money to make the film, which was shot in Portugal in 2006. David Doulas and Johan Jacob were the leads, and then there were two other actors, uh, Michael Imperioli and my daughter, Sophie Oster, who had a small role. We made it for very little money with a very small crew, and I had an absolutely wonderful time doing it, I have to say. The film was not widely distributed. It was picked up by New Yorker Films, the distinguished film distributors. I was so impressed when I saw my name in the catalog between Antonioni and Bertolucci. But uh, <laughs> New Yorker was on its last legs, and they didn't have much money, and certainly no money to promote the film. So it was shown in one theater in New York for about two weeks. Then it was put on dVD and that's the that's the end of the story of the film. <laughs> so there's a short version in the book and the long version on screen. I think it was streaming at one point, but I'm not sure it's I possible I, you know i don't I don't keep up with these things.
0: <laughs> well, Paul Oster, let's talk about four three, two, one, which is kind of a magnum opus, I guess. Most of your books have been fairly brief books, and this one is around 850 pages so 2010 you were interviewed by someone and you made the comment that you had nothing going on that you had no ideas that you had no idea maybe you would slow down a bit and not write as much what happened how did this
1: book come out of that i'll tell you it was 2010 was the year i published sunset park this was a very intense experience i had written two novels in a short period, Invisible and Sunset Park, which I, I found to be among the most for me, the most exciting things I'd ever worked on. And they seemed to be a kind of breakthrough into a new new way of telling stories. But I wrote them in such a fever that I was exhausted. And so I think when I talked to that interviewer, I must have been at the low ebb of my energy. But I did pull myself together and I Worked on two autobiographical books, Winter Journal, and then later Report from the Interior, and meantime maintained this intense correspondence with Jam Kotsia, and which we published that as a book too, Here and Now. So there were three books between Sunset Park in 2010 and this book in 2017, and I think writing those autobiographical works. Winter Journal, Report from the Interior, sent me flying back into my childhood for the first time in, in a protracted, serious way since my adulthood. And I think I was I was plowing the ground for this big novel that I began writing afterwards.
0: The novel itself tells the story of a character named Archie Ferguson, who clearly, in ways that probably seeped in consciously and unconsciously mirrors portions of your own biography. Well, I want to make this
1: clear. It is not an autobiographical novel, but what the novel shares with my own life is the geography and the chronology. So Archie's a boy born the same year I was, and he lives in the places where I lived. And I do borrow a few things from my own life, but nothing of any great significance.
0: There are elements of aesthetic interest that probably mirrors yours because you go into detail about some of the books that have been read, you go into detail about the films that he's seen, you go into some kind of detail about philosophical ideas based on the films, literary ideas and all of that. And obviously, even if they're not yours, they come out of
1: Well, know, okay. Biography. okay, in that sense, fine. I'm I'm with you there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the book itself has an unusual form in that there is not one Archie, there are four. There are four separate stories about growing up with different events occurring and as the events occur, each of these alternate reality archies move in different directions, sort of been done in, I think it was a film called Sliding Doors.
1: Yeah, but I mean to say, this is not a novel idea. People have talked about alternate realities, but I don't know if anyone has done four rotating stories like this in a novel. It's not that we hear story one and then, and then to the end and then story two, they're, they're in cycles. And the book begins with chapter 1.0 which is a prologue. It tells the story of how Ferguson's parents met, married, and ends with him being born. And then we have 1.1, the first Archie, and 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, and then 2.1 goes in that way, seven cycles. In terms of the writing, in
0: order to keep it straight, it struck me that either you had to write each one, each section, and later insert them like that, part by part, or you must have had a very giant chart to keep track of where Aunt
1: Mildred was. Neither one. I mean, uh, I I wrote the book in order. First sentence, second sentence, tenth sentence, all the way to the last sentence in the same order. It's printed. And uh, I had it all in my head. I didn't have elaborate charts. It was really very simple for me. You know, I've been at this a long time. You know, I've been writing for more than 50 years, and, and by now it's, it's in my body. And they were very distinct, the four Fergusons for me. And, you know, if you read the book slowly and carefully, you'll see that they really are different personalities, even though they share some of the same interests and, of course, some of the same talents because they're genetically identical. But at the same time, their personalities, because of circumstances, develop differently.
0: You were always able to keep track then. Yeah. One of the things I found is that by not indicating, say, at the top of the page, you sort of have to get context every time you put the book down to try to figure out exactly which Archie is which are you thinking about the reader and what the reader
1: might do? Well, I haven't had complaints from anybody. It's not really very hard to follow once you get into the swing of it. And if you read the flap copy, it explains how the book is set up. Plus, when I start the chapters, I mean, I do make some kind of allusion to what's happened before to that particular iteration of Archie. Again, if you've been paying attention, it's not hard to follow. No, it's not. No. It's not. And,
0: and it's a, a book that's fairly easy to dive into it's an immersive book in a way that maybe your other books aren't in the same way
1: different this is on a scale that's different i think i was trying to do something different with this i in fact not think i know what was your thought
0: process in determining that you would write a book about four different clones in a way we can use that term because they're not really clones
1: the essence of this book, I molded it over, so I, I think I'm right now in this conclusion, that the source of this book comes from a personal experience, something that happened to me when I was a young person, 14 years old. And I, I've written about this, so this is not a secret. It's in The Red Notebook, a book of true stories that I published years ago. 14 years old, I was at a summer camp in New York State. And a group of 20 boys or so, I among them, went out on a hike in the woods, and we got caught in a terrific, violent electric storm with lightning crashing down and thunder and pounding, pounding rain. It was quite scary. The lightning was frightening. And we um, decided that we should get to a clearing, get away from the trees, which is, in fact, the right thing to do. And in order to get to the clearing, which we found, we had to crawl under a barbed wire fence. We went single file. And the boy right in front of me, as he was midway through, lightning struck the barbed wire fence. And he was electrocuted and killed on the spot. And I was closer to him than I am to you right now. My head was inches from his feet. I didn't know he was dead, and I pulled him, I crawled next to him and pulled him through into the meadow and spent an hour rubbing him and trying to keep him warm, still not understanding he was dead as his face was turning blue. And then, of course, the truth of the matter was revealed, and there, you know, that was the first dead person I had seen and touched. I think my entire life changed that day. It was such a cataclysmic event. The one solid world that I had believed in turned out to be very, very porous, frangible. And uh, I discovered that anything could happen at any moment to anybody. Live one minute as a 14-year-old boy, and the next instant you're dead. And I think that experience haunted me throughout. And this is at the core of the motivation of writing this book. This story is deeply significant in terms of how the book evolves and what the book is about. I think beyond that, it's also a book about human development, something that interests me so deeply, about what it's like to be four years old and six years old and eight and 12 and the differences. It's also a book about growing up in that particular time, in that particular place, so one of the Fergusons, number one, is particularly attentive to what's going on around him. He's gravitating towards journalism as he gets through high school. And uh, when he gets to college, he joins the student newspaper. There's a lot about the Vietnam War, the protests against the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, and um, student activism. The, the whole period is there, particularly in the first cycle. Other Fergusons are less engaged, and they're not paying as much attention. When you were writing each of them, I guess if you found
0: a place where you began to say, well, you know, I don't care that much, you could always put in an event which changes the person and moves in a new direction.
1: I don't write that way. It's not really? It's not like playing chess, you know, where you say, oh, let's make a new move here. No, no, it's all organic. And you go into a kind of trance as a writer, and you start to inhabit the characters. They're telling you what they need to do and what's going to happen to them. There's real, really no sense of manipulation. Strange, but I know people are surprised when they hear this, but that's how it works. Otherwise, it wouldn't be convincing. You just feel you're watching a puppet show, and this book is not a puppet show. Are there moments
0: when you would kind of back off and go, this is a little bit too close to me? No,
1: no. You get into a zone, and uh, you're not thinking those thoughts. I've found this for all the books I've ever written. You, You have to be in a state of such relaxation and openness to the world around you and the world inside you, and you have to Stop resisting, and that's when the the good ideas come, and the prose can start to to sing a little bit. What do you mean by stop resisting? Stop resisting the temptation to overthink what you're doing. That's all. I mean, later, you know, you can assess with some distance, but in the act of composition, I think you have to um, kind of let yourself go.
0: In this particular book, since you're diving into and basically putting the reader into the those time periods, and while each one is separate, they're the same time periods with the same national background. What kind of research, and does the research stop you? For instance, you give a detailed description of the Thalia. Now, was that from memory, memory. or did you that's, go back? That's from memory. Okay. Yes,
1: yes. I, I used to go to the Thalia Theater when I was young, which was a Art House Movie Theater on 95th Street and Broadway, just for people who don't know what we're talking about. And um, every day they would show two different films. So they showed approximately 700 different films a year. Everyone was a classic from one part of the world or another. And I got a tremendous film education there in my undergraduate years, because Columbia, where I went, was only 20 blocks to the north. And with 50 cents and a student card you can get in and watch the double bill and there were many days when I would either cut a class or didn't have a class and I would just go down on the bus and run into the stallion and watch a movie or two and um, it was a great a great place to go and I believe that's Archie 3 yes yeah yes. that's Archie he's 3. the film nut yes yes, <laughs> yes yes
0: yes yes he's a little bit different from the other Archies by virtue of the event that happens early on. Yeah,
1: well, I could say what it is because it happens so early in the book. Uh, When he's seven, his father's killed in in a fire, an arson's fire. This sends this Archie spinning, spinning in ways that the other boys don't quite spin. He's the one who has the most trouble, both with authority and getting into trouble and also with himself. And he's the one who winds up growing up in New York, whereas the others are in New Jersey.
0: As I was doing my research, I went to Wikipedia. It listed at one point in Wikipedia various things that interest Paul Oster. The word post-structuralism came up. From the perspective of writing theory, when you're working on a book like this, How much of that is conscious when you're talking about things like
1: theory? Oh, I don't think about theory at all. For me, it's just nonsense. Uh, It's not my job to think about these things. Actually, I've never looked myself up on the Internet. I don't know what my Wikipedia page has in it. I'm sure there's a lot of erroneous information. I have no idea. I just don't want to go down that rabbit hole of self-involvement. It's uh, something I just... Have avoided all my life. I know, listen, there are at least 40 or 50 books published about me. There are hundreds of dissertations and papers, right. and I don't read these things. I'm not, I'm not interested in following. I have many of the books have been sent to me, and I open them up, and I take a glance, and then I close them and put them on a shelf. I don't, I don't want to read it. What it talked about, for instance, was the role of coincidence,
0: a search for identity, and the way random events change things. But of course, if you at the age of 14 were so affected by a random event, and it's going to permeate your life, it's exactly. going to permeate your work.
1: Absolutely. It's, I, I, I would stay, say that it's the foundation of my feeling about the world, that, that event. It's the most important thing that ever happened to me. When I was speaking with uh, George Saunders and we
0: were talking about this book, and we began getting into metaphysical ideas of multiple realities, does any of that resonate with you
1: at all in terms of four three two one Well, yes, uh, I, I mean the book is in a sense a book that poses the question what if what if my father had been rich? What if my father had been killed? what if my father had lost all his money, for example. And what if I had turned left that day instead of right? What if I, just yesterday, now this is fascinating. I met somebody who told me that, because I've given this example about how chance can can influence people's lives. You're running for the bus, but you miss it. And so you have to wait for the next one. And while you're waiting for the next one, a beautiful woman sits down next to you to wait and you start talking, and a year later, you're married. And uh, if you had caught the bus, you would never have met that person. Well, someone told me last night that he met his wife waiting in line for a concert in New York City. And if he hadn't bought something at a newsstand a minute before, he would have uh, been ahead of her, and he would have missed her, never talked to her, never would have married her. And this is a kind of question I think... Everybody asks. It's it's fascinating to think about these things. There's actually
0: uh, a short story related inside uh, four three two one by one of the Archies about left and right going one way or the well, it's, other. It's
1: actually, it's actually right, left, or straight ahead. There are three possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, why did you make it four to start? Why that number? When the idea, the concept, I suppose, of the book came to me, I wasn't sure how many there should be. But after much thought, I I thought four would be just right. I think five would have been too many. I think at that point, it would have been too hard to keep it all in your head. And three would have been too few. You wouldn't have felt the overwhelming multiplicity of of the whole project. And two certainly would have been without interest.
0: Which is interesting about the two because in the context of the book, doppelgangers seem to play a role. There's Archie and Artie the short story of the two shoes. This is the two brothers of Stanley, his father. And I kept thinking, you know, is there any pattern that I'm seeing here about twos
1: as opposed to threes or fours? Oh, I see what you mean. I don't think so. The AF twins, as they call them, you know, Archie Ferguson and Artie Fetterman. This is the crucial thing that happens in the book and this is the thing that echoes uh, my own experience that i talked about earlier when these two 14 year old boys at a summer camp have become great friends and people joke about the fact that their names are almost identical even though they and they don't look anything like each other and fetterman drops dead of a brain aneurysm and this is uh the big Uh, sorrow in in Archie's fourth life and And it reflects what happened
0: to you just like what happens to one of the other Archie's reflects what happens to you as well yeah when you were starting out you mentioned before about your own life on some level is Archie Paul Auster that if there were a seventh or eighth it could have been you
1: I don't think so. One thing about these boys, uh, I have to say, is they're remarkably precocious in ways that I never was, (laughs) and I think not too many people are. Archie, too, after all, in his own sloppy way, founds his own newspaper when he's 11 years old, a handwritten one-sheet newspaper, the Cobble Road Crusader, and uh, he, he works very diligently at that. I certainly, at that age, not have been capable of doing such a thing why the name archie ferguson the book begins with the the old joke that's how this jewish man the grandfather comes from russia as i say in the book you know the first day of the 20th century and he's at ellis island he has a long russian name And he meets an older Russian Jew, and the man says, you should change your name. This is not a good name for America. You need a a new name for your new life in America with a good American ring to it. And the young immigrant says, "Uh, well, what do you suggest? And the older man says, Rockefeller. Say you're Rockefeller. You can't go wrong with that. So when the young man finally sits down to talk to the immigration official, he forgets the name that that he was supposed to give. And the man says, your name, and he says in Yiddish, Ich Habt I've forgotten, and he becomes Ichabod Ferguson. So it's a joke, and I didn't make this joke up. This is an old Jewish joke that had been circulating for years, but I only heard it about two years before I started writing the book. I, I modified it a little bit. The first name in the standard telling of the joke is Shane Ferguson becoming Sean Ferguson. But I thought the Ichabod is funnier. So I, I changed it a bit. Why Archie? Archie I don't know, I don't know. I did have an uncle Archie, a great uncle Archie, someone I liked a lot, possibly that's it. I don't know. I just like the name Archie. It creates an
0: interesting point for two of the uh, two of the Fergusons because they have to find pen names. For yes, themselves. yes, yes yes,
1: <laughs> well, they't like, they, they think Archibald is just about the worst name you could have. Well, they're haunted by that you know silly character in the comic book, so they don't want to be identified with Archie Andrews, and so one of the Fergusons calls himself AI Ferguson. He signs his work that. Another one decides to use his middle name Isaac Ferguson to sign his work. Is this the reason, because of
0: Archie the comic, is this the reason that in the book he is always referred to as Ferguson? No, no,
1: because in fact, I think nearly every novel I've written in the third person, I refer to the protagonist as uh, by uh, last name, not first name.
0: I mean, it gets confusing, of course, if you were to refer to anybody else as Ferguson, so you have to use first names for everyone
1: else. Yes, most of the time I do. That's right. But this Ferguson character is this consciousness floating through the story. So he has a different status from the other characters.
0: When you were finished with the first draft, did you go back and try to research to make sure that you got stuff from 1968? Oh, oh, I was
1: researching while I was doing it. I mean, if I was talking about a particular event in the Civil Rights Movement, I would look up the dates just to be sure. No, I was doing a lot of reading as I was writing. Did you worry about
0: what the weather was on any given day, or was that...
1: Actually, I did, and I, really? and I looked it up. The weather's accurate, I'm, I, I'm happy to say. <laughs> I mean, there's a, that uh, day when Archie and his mother go over to have brunch after he's written the story about the shoes, and they go over to Amy Schneiderman's house and her parents, and I looked up the weather, and I found out it was a very cold, misly, drizzly day of about, you know, 31 or 32. It wasn't quite snowing, but it was awful weather, and therefore Archie couldn't walk to the house, and his mother drove him. <laughs> so I looked it up. <laughs>
0: Uh, Occasionally, real people find their way in, but not too often.
1: Were you concerned about interacting real people and...? Well, Pierre Matisse appears in the book. Pierre Matisse is somebody I knew and uh, worked for him. I wrote uh, a couple of catalogues for his gallery and translated some other catalogues. I really liked this man enormously. He was a great soul. The son of the painter Henri Matisse, Pierre, had an art gallery in New York for decades. And uh, it was a little homage to him because he was that kind of generous man. So when Archie and Amy go into the gallery when they're 15 or 16 years old, he takes them aside and talks to them and gives them a bunch of catalogs. And they feel ignited by this act of generosity. In the Columbia section, one of the boys goes there. And that's the place I went. There are four characters named by their real names. And they all gave me permission to use them. I sent them all the manuscript. Mark Rudd, who was the SDS leader. I went to high school and college with Mark. And then Robert Friedman, who was the editor of the Columbia Spectator, the daily newspaper, Hilton Obenzinger and Les Godesman. They're all there. And they said they were pleased to be part of the fiction. There are several short stories throughout the book.
0: All by Ferguson Four. He's the budding fiction writer. These were all written in the context of the book. They didn't come from elsewhere like inner life.
1: Well, here's the thing. The story about the shoes called Soulmates, S-O-L-E, that Archie Four writes when he's 14, this first major literary effort, is something I invented for the novel. I don't quote from it, I summarized the story. It was a real challenge and, and, and quite, quite enjoyable, too, to try to get into the mind of an intelligent, precocious 14-year-old boy and what kind of story he would, he would write at that moment as a response to the grief he's feeling over the death of his friend that, that summer. Later on, we learned about some of the stories that Ferguson is writing in high school when he's older, those two are all all made up for the novel. On the other hand, when he's in college, there are two extracts from works that he's writing at that point, and those are actually things that I myself wrote at 19 and 20 years old. I thought, well, they've never been published. They're in the spirit of what's going on in, in, in his life, and, and why not use authentic 19-year-old and 20-year-old works? Because this is... A bigger work. When you
0: walked out of it, finishing writing it, what do you think might have
1: changed within you for future writing? This is a very interesting question. I do know that when I wrote the last sentence of the book, I paused for a second and then I stood up and I nearly passed out. I was so exhausted. Uh, You know, I wrote this book in three years. I was in a, a kind of frenzy of composition. I didn't do anything else. I didn't talk to people like you on the radio. I didn't give readings. I didn't travel. I just stayed home, buried in writing the book, most often seven days a week, six days a week for sure, and sometimes seven. I feel still now, so many months after I finished, absolutely emptied out. I have thoughts about what I want to do in the future, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The marathon, this was a, a, a more than a marathon. It was like running across a, an entire country. So it was exhausting. And I I'm, I had this feeling as I was writing it that this was the book I had been training myself all my life to write, that this was some kind of summation or a closing of a big circle that started with the invention of solitude so many years ago, 30, almost 40 years ago, 38 years ago. And... Um, And so I have to think about what I want to do when I grow up now. I mean, uh, really, uh, maybe my childhood is over. And now that I've turned 70, I have to um, get serious and figure out what to do with my life. Well, you could always become a director. Yeah, it's possible. (laughs) Is there a film of In
0: the Country of Last Thing?
1: There's a script, and it was written years ago. And uh, there are producers trying to make it. But I don't think – they. I know they haven't raised the sufficient money to do it. But it's a script that I think is quite good. It was written by a Argentinian director named Alejandro Tromsky. And um, it's good. But I think it would be such a difficult film to, to get produced today. I'm not expecting it to happen. What I am looking forward to, I have to say, is I'm going to England and there's a um, – Theater adaptation of one of my novels that's going to be mounted there, opening in Manchester and then moving to London, and most likely they say to New York eventually. Of City of Glass, you know, the first novel of the New York trilogy, and it's it's being done by a company called uh, Productions Fifty Nine, and they have uh, tremendous technical ability and stagecraft, and you know they're telling me that when characters speak. You'll be able to see the words coming out of their mouths, and I I can't wait to see this. I don't know what it's going to be like. Some great circus event, some great theater event, or something less interesting than I'm expecting. But I will be going to the theater to watch it. One final question back to 4321.
0: Did you know how each of the stories would end as you were going
1: in? As I was going in, no. And I kept rethinking the book as I was moving along. I had many different ideas, many different possibilities. Originally, for example, I thought I would take the, the boys deeper into their lives. But then when I realized that it was essentially a book about development, I thought early adulthood was the place to stop. Because beyond that, then it would have been a different kind of book. So, yeah, my feelings shifted. A lot of the book is truly improvised on the spot. I'd have ideas and then uh, something else would occur to me, one episode or another. Many things that I wanted to put in the book, I couldn't. I just couldn't because it would have made it too unwieldy. But I had a lot of other possible narratives within the story. But enough was enough and it is what it is <laughs> that's it it's big enough did you cut stuff uh, yeah you? i cut i cut lots of stuff archie number 2
0: did you always know one of the archies would have that experience
1: yes i knew that but only uh, after a, a little while i didn't begin the book knowing that and then i realized that it was necessary for the structure of the book and how painful it was to write those last pages of that chapter, I must say. But when you get to the end, I swear you'll understand what all this adds up to, and you'll understand what the title means too. Do you ever see yourself, I I think
0: I know the answer to this, but do you ever see yourself going back to the Archies? No.
1: No, I can't can't imagine it. It's, It's true that I've resurrected characters from previous novels and inserted them in other novels, but no, I I would never do this. This is complete. This is finished.
0: Since the publication of 4321, there have been 4 nonfiction works. There was Burning Boy, a biography of the poet and author of The Red Badge of Courage, Stephen Crane, which was published in October 2021 and shortlisted for the Booker Prize, There have been two collections of writings. There was also A Life in Words, a dialogue between Paul Auster and the Danish philosopher I.B. Segumfelt, which was published in October 2017. And in January 23, there was Bloodbath Nation, which was a book-length essay with photographs about gun culture in the United States. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.